Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Rosh Hashanah sermon by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. A priest, an imam, and a rabbit walk into a blood bank to donate blood. And the rabbit says, I'm a type O. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. That's all, that's all I got this morning, by the way. It's like, I'm done. Some, there was a meme on Facebook a few weeks ago, somewhere in the, in the Jewish Facebook world. Someone wrote, I feel like after the year we've all had, our rabbi should be able to stand up on Rosh Hashanah and just exclaim, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know what to say. And we'd all kind of nod and say, L'chaim, I'll drink to that. <laughs> so, we, we could end there if you wanted to. I suppose we all think of our years as superlative, and, 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 and maybe 30 and 50 and 100 and 150 years ago, they also felt that everywhere they looked, things were catastrophic. But it seems like we're assaulted by headlines nowadays in ways that we haven't before, and I and rabbis around the country have were wondering for the last few weeks, you know, do we go to Afghanistan or wildfires or political division in our country? Which headline should we be speaking to? My answer, at least for today, is none of them. To prepare for this sermon, I asked a colleague if he had a story of the email he never sent. The thing he really wanted to say in the moment, but instead held back. And he responded, that's the story of my life. And it's been a good life. And an exemplary career. And I don't think that's an accident. We know that what we say and what we do impacts our lives and other lo- others' lives and the world around us. It's also the case that what we do not say, what we refrain from doing, can shape reality. And it's the essence of what it means to be a human. Humans can hold back. Most other species just follow their instincts and their urges. Sometimes the right slogan is, don't just do something, stand there. In life, and certainly through the values of the Jewish tradition, just standing there can be the sign of greatest strength. Now that I've mentioned someone who has only uplifted me in my life, that colleague, let me move on to one who for years brought me low. My childhood bully terrorized me. I couldn't escape him. I was afraid of him physically. I suffered from him emotionally. Once in third grade, and this story is not embellished, during recess... We were on opposite sides of the kickball court. He walked by me, 
sucker punched me in the stomach, knocked the wind out of me, and then smirked as we were both brought in to spend recess in Mr. Shapiro's office as punishment for having been fighting. He was that kind of kid. And I'm sure that there's a piece of my instinct towards treating people right and kindly, I hope, that was forged in the crucible of his mistreatment of me. So perhaps I ought to have some sense of gratitude to him. But I don't feel it. Forty years later, I remain angry that he did it and he got away with it and then went on with his life. Now, coincidentally, two boys from Little Woodbridge, Connecticut, went on with their lives and both ended up in Los Angeles. And some years ago, I realized that happenstance had put us again in the same location. And for months, I agonized about whether to connect with him. For what purpose? Just to say hello? To reminisce about the good old days in Ms. Shapiro's classroom? (laughs) Maybe to get an answer to the burning question, why? Why did you feel the need to do that to me? Just to let him know that he injured me and maybe eke out a delayed apology? I messaged him on Facebook. We decided to meet for coffee off of Santa Monica Boulevard. I rehearsed my speech in my mind for days. It would be respectful, but pointed. It would be fair, but honest. I would unburden myself, and he would feel appropriately burdened. Closure. Maybe a sliver of contrition. And even if not, satisfaction. I had not seen him since our high school graduation in 1990. He arrived at the restaurant. I had been there a few minutes beforehand. He approached me like old friends, gave me an oddly normal hug, and we sat down. I looked into his face to find some recognition. Did he remember? Did he even know? Was it part of his consciousness what he did to me? Or might it be that he really just thought he was reconnecting with a kid from the neighborhood? As the meal went on, my urge to unload him, which had been unload on him, which had been so vast, waned. As if a tidal wave building for decades had just disappeared. I held back, not because I was afraid, but because I realized I had the power to. And I understood that I had done the work myself. I realized that telling him and telling him off was not what I needed to do. What I needed to do, I had already done, which was to emerge stronger and to live my life wildly different than he had lived his childhood and adolescence. My restraint in that moment was the perfect antithesis of his lack of restraint back then. The venting might have been gratifying, a great endorphin rush. But this man seemed to be living a noble enough life at this point, rehashing his sins upon me from ages 7 to 15 or so, would bring neither him nor me anywhere meaningful. I would save and protect nobody. So I continued with the banal chatter. I split the check, said it was nice to see him, 
and walked away. For years I had fantasized about that moment and what it would feel like to have those words of righteous rage emerge from my mouth. Like that powerful sense of clarity and victory you are certain you will experience if you momentarily and intentionally lose your composure and allow yourself to yell at a child or a student or a spouse or a parent. That kind of faux clarity that obscures in the moment what's important and what is needed. And it's rarely the yell. In this case with my bully, it was the rehearsal in my mind, deep in the soul. And it was the internal work that were the keys. Amazing things become clear and possible when you hold back, when you reconsider, when you wait, when you choose not to speak, choose for the moment not to do, perhaps to find out that there are better uses for your words and your actions. Now, it can feel like weakness to hold back. In that coffee shop by Santa Monica, did I cower from my bully one more time? I don't think so. Because again, sometimes doing nothing means everything. We confront this notion in classic Jewish and rabbinic texts, including the often quoted line from Pirkei Avot, Ezehu Gibor, who is a hero? Who is mighty? Who is strong? You can imagine other ancient texts might have answered, the one who wields his weapon with valor, the one who vanquishes his foe, not the rabbis. The Mishnah's answer is Hakovesh et Yitzro, the one who vanquishes his own urges, the one who holds back, the one who doesn't attack every single time, who does not submit to every urge, the one who realizes that the words not said are some of the most important ones. That's a hero. Now some understand this line to mean that conquering one's yetzer hara, one's evil impulse to be violent or licentious or to steal, that's the mark of heroism. But at least one commentator, probably many others, reads it much more broadly. The 19th century rabbi Israel Lifshitz from the town of Danzig, which is sometimes in Poland, sometimes in Germany, depending on what day you're looking at the map, he links this line with three other similar ones in the same text, which ask who is rich and who is wise and who is happy. Rabbi Lifshitz says that the Mishnah is teaching us that often the way to get what we desire is the opposite of our momentary instinct. For instance, he says, somebody wants to be known as wise, wants to be seen by everyone as wise, and then, because of that instinct, refuses to learn from others, lest they be thought of as lacking wisdom. And what happens? No wisdom comes. Same with heroism and strength, Rabbi Lifshitz says. It seems to you that you gain it by expressing it, by downing your foes. But what does it look like to others? It looks desperate. It smacks of evil. Violence, yes, but no heroism. To conquer one's yetzer at times, to not do or say the things that are circumstantially warranted in order to transcend the smallness of that moment and thus live with even bigger possibilities, with a bigger heart. That is living towards the life of a hero. Now such moments of restraint can loom large 
and some like the still small voice of God that we're going to reference in a few minutes in the Unatana Tokef. At times they are whispers, but no less profound. I've spoken many times in the last three and a half years about my exquisite week learning meditation and qigong, Chinese body posture meditation at the Holy Isle in Scotland. And much of the learning came from what we did and the postures that we practiced and held, the words of the guided meditations, the questions we asked of our teacher and of one another. But some of the illumination came from what we didn't do and didn't say. Several times a week on this retreat, we were to have a meal, what was referred to as noble silence, a zone of quietude. We got our food, we sat down at the normal tables, and we ate. At first, it was weird not to speak to the person across from me. Felt a little bit Frisco kid, if you get the reference, right? The salt. Pass the salt, please. It almost seemed rude, even though I knew it wasn't. Do I even make eye contact? Holding quiet eye contact can be jarring. But eventually I slipped into a deeper zone. Awake and alert. Oddly and reassuringly meditative. I heard myself chew. I tasted taste in my food that were obscured to me before. I ate intentionally, like a prayer. I experienced the meal as nourishing in a way that I rarely do, as if each morsel were a treat. I made and I held eye contact with those in my cohort, sometimes locking gazes for five to ten seconds. And lots was communicated in those extended moments, even without speech. And within the cocoon of quiet, my mind leapt and explored and conjured ideas and images and even feelings that I'm sure would have been utterly elusive had I filled up those moments with, how was your last session? And remind me where you're from again. In those moments, I was not quashing some evil impulse. That was not my Yetzir Hara. But I was conquering an urge of sorts. An urge spurred by our garrulous society and our relentless focus on spoken word. And our relentless cultural demand that we do, that we respond, that we react every single time. Can we hear the countercultural call? Don't just say something. Sit there. Now, to be clear, this is not an exhortation to passivity, to achieving courage by doing nothing, to stay quiet in or complacent in the face of evil or outrage. There are plenty of junctures in life where such acting and speaking is warranted and holy and a true obligation. I'll share a recent and painful and also inspiring example. Many of you know how important USY, the conservative movement's youth group, was to me and the formation of my Jewish identity, and possibly to many of you here. And at Beth Am, we are so proud of our own chapter and how our kids have learned to lead and learned to love and master Judaism through it. A few weeks ago, as I shared in an email to the shul that many of you may have read, a terrible scandal emerged within our dear USY. A former active U.S. wire from the New York area, currently a rabbi, 
wrote an article in the Times of Israel detailing years of sexual abuse by a well-known and beloved USY staff member. After the article came out, more victims came forward. There may be dozens, if not hundreds more. The accusations are incredibly hard to read through. They detail a male staff member taking advantage of the very safe intimacy that USY is meant to foster and which it certainly and safely did for me and tens of thousands of more over the years. But this staff member abused that trust and intimacy in horrific ways. These sins, and I think they're sins, by the perpetrator and those who may have covered it up are severe. I feel bonded to this awful story in so many ways. USY has some hard and very painful work to do in order to achieve tshuva, repentance, and earn our trust that its programs and conventions and activities remain safe spaces. This reckoning is painful and is traumatic, both for those victims reliving their abuse and for those associated with USY who are confronting some ugly truths. And this reckoning is a mitzvah. And it will happen only because one brave victim at first chose not to hold back. He elected not to not speak. He resisted the urge in this situation properly to stay quiet and thus perhaps spare some shame for the organization that he loved and still he claims helped create the rabbi that he is today and the Jew that he is today. He realized that his silence here would be anything but noble. This is a poignant example of the sanctity of acting out, saving lives as a result. Here is someone choosing not to just stand there, but rather to do something. Judaism venerates both stances. Jung wrote about the duality of man, pushed all the time by often opposing instincts deep in our anthropology and our psychology. The God of Genesis is one who creates worlds with word and deed. To imitate that God, we must act and do and speak and create. And the God of the Kabbalah is venerated as one who did simtsum, who held back, who restrained, who literally made God's self smaller in order to make room for the world and for us to see what could emerge in the vacuum. That's also a God that we must emulate. The artist knowing which moment calls for which, when to call out with righteous activity, and when to surrender the momentary and temporarily satisfying thrill that comes with a cleverly placed word, a lightning strike, in the name of a greater possibility of healthy bonds with you and your loved ones and with society itself. The Ramban, the great 13th century Spanish rabbi, names the notion of sacred restraint as the prime pathway to religious life. He's commenting on the verse from Leviticus by Ikra, which commands us, Kedoshim to you, be holy. First, the Rambam does what he most likes to do, which is to quote Rashi and tell us why Rashi is wrong. Rashi says that this notion of restraint is specific to prohibited things immorality, depravity. But the Ramban valorizes this restraint as a much broader concept. In his words, quote, this abstinence does not refer only to restraints from immorality, 
but it is rather the self-control mentioned throughout the Talmud. And it even connects this basic human stance, this honed self-limitation to the name by which the rabbis of the Talmud were known. You may have heard the word the Pharisees, referring to the early rabbis. It comes from the Hebrew word prushim, Pharisee perushim, those who hold back, who separate themselves from their urges. Those, in other words, who do not do everything they feel the urge to do. Those who do not say every word that comes to mind. Those who live in that human realm separated, perushim, from all others in the animal kingdom. Those who can consider a moment and pause and choose not to say it and not to yell and not to unload, even if warranted, and not to press send, even though it would feel good in the moment. The moment will pass and there are greater vistas to explore. I think we all must be circumstantial and strategic Pharisees, knowing when we should not just do something or say something, but rather stand there and sit there and watch the horizon for what might emerge. There's a core narrative in my extended family's story has to do with a terrible conflict that was taking place in one part of the family a few generations ago. A woman was in a horrible fight with her one child, her daughter, over what else? Money and inheritance, even though there was plenty of all of it to go around. And the daughter was so incensed by what happened that even though the rest of us in the family believed that the mother was in the right, she chose to cut off all ties with her mother, including telling her children that their grandmother was dead. And this extended for years, painfully, as events went by in the family calendar with there being no connection between grandmother and daughter, grandmother and grandchildren, and grandmother and her own daughter. At what point, at what point, at one point, the grandmother reached out to my grandparents for counsel. And my grandparents were very wise people. And she said, what do I do? Do I sue? Do I countersue? We all know that I'm correct here. My grandparents gave her the following line. They said, you can do, and you can sue, and you can be right. Or you can be a grandmother. You can do what you deserve to do and say what you've earned the right to say. Or you can shoulder it painfully, nobly, and end up living out a richer life with yet more of the things and the people that you deserve and that you need. And that's the path she chose. We confront such junctures all the time with childhood bullies, with coworkers or loved ones who push our buttons. Even within ourselves, this battle rages. To respond to every individual need that bubbles up, to imitate the divine doer, the divine creator, 
or to mimic the holy restrainer. To make a mark by doing and saying and for now winning this moment's battle. Or to make a yet more sacred and enduring mark by what we choose not to say. What we agree not to do. And thus transcend the language of battle and finally and deservedly live a life of peace. In this ongoing dance, being pulled between doing and not doing, volume or quiet, we could be inspired by the extraordinary poem by Adrian Ritz, the 20th century wonderful American poet. She wrote, The technology of silence, the rituals, etiquette, the blurring of terms, silence, not absence, Silence can be a plan rigorously executed, the blueprint to a life. It is a presence. It has history, a form. Do not confuse it with any kind of absence. Shana Tova. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.